Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. This is the Commonwealth Club of California. Find us on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. I'm Ann Clark, a member of the Commonwealth Club and chair of the Environment and Natural Resources member-led forum. Our program tonight is Water from the Wilderness, San Francisco's water supply post-1906 and in the era of climate change. With Jim Yeager, senior producer, Jim Yeager Media, Water from the Wilderness, Michael Carlin, Deputy General Manager and Chief Operating Officer, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, Sarah Elkin, President, excuse me, Professor, Environment and Urban History, San Diego State University, Radhika Fox, Chief Executive Officer, U.S. Water Alliance. And we start with Jim. Thank you, Anne. Uh, The story of how San Francisco came to secure its dedicated water supply in the years following the 1906 earthquake is a study in the resurrection of a major city following disaster, uh, ingenuity, political will, national controversy, engineering, accomplishment, and of course, economics. The pristine Hetch Hetchy water from the Sierras and the Tuolumne River that we in many ways take for granted today was and continues to be a marvel, but it came at a cost. This was the main purpose behind the 60-minute public television documentary that my team and I produced called Water from the Wilderness, to illuminate the story of where and how the water that 2.7 million people here in the Bay Area, in the greater Bay Area, enjoy, where it comes from, the sacrifices that were made to get it here, and that its future is far from secure. It's a tale whose particulars may be unique to San Francisco, but it's also a story that has echoes of what's happening in cities across America as they struggle with aging infrastructure and how to deal with a rapidly changing climate. Today, with the help of our panel, we'll have a discussion in two parts. First, the history of the Hetch Hetchy water and power system post-1906, and following that, we'll take a look at how San Francisco is dealing with an uncertain water future. But first, let's take a look and a listen to a short clip from the opening of the film. It is a city built on sand, on fog-swept dunes and dry cliffs of chert, rising from a semi-arid desert, perched along a salt sea, a city without water. That there is fresh water in San Francisco, abundant, pristine water, is something of a miracle. Drained from a melting glacier 200 miles away through a system nobody thought could be built or should be built. A system some died fighting and some still want to dismantle. Today, millions of people depend on it and more every day. But the very climate the water depends on is changing. Our water future is very, very uncertain. The existing infrastructure that feeds San Francisco in the Bay Area was designed for a climate that no longer exists. Crumbling infrastructure and negligence have shaken the nation's faith in what it's long taken for granted. We're going forward into this period of enormous global environmental challenge, not trusting the kinds of institutions that solved the problem before. This is the unlikely story of how one city got its water. And the unsolved mystery of how to keep it flowing. Right, so as you heard from our narrator, Marilyn Pittman, uh, and a few of the other voices in our film, this is the story of how a city without water, somewhat miraculously and controversially, brought fresh water 167 miles across the state of California from Yosemite National Park. So let's get started. Uh, Michael Carlin, uh, why did San Francisco have to go hundreds of miles away to a valley inside of National Park to secure its water? 
I, <clears throat> the reason why is they didn't have a lot of local water. And um, a lot of the local water was actually managed by private water companies. And so the city felt that they wanted to have a municipal supply. And so they looked towards the Sierra Mountains. And we're not the only ones that looked towards the Sierra Mountains. Others did at that time as well. So the city decided uh, uh, in the early 1900s to find a different source of water. And they went and developed uh, several times to try and get the Hetch Hetchy system actually permitted or, or, or approved. But it took more time than people thought. And the only reason I think we have the Hetch Hetchy system today, and I will say this, is because of politics. We had a mayor who supported a president who then had the uh, city attorney appointed to the secretary, become secretary of interior. And we had a, a little known congressman in the Central Valley named John Raker who introduced an act that actually created the Hetch Hetchy system. I would add to that that at the time at which Hetch Hetchy was built, this is what big cities did. And if you were a city that had aspirations of being a, a, a city competing with Philadelphia or New York or Chicago, you, you built a grand system. The other thing is that there was no water treatment at this time. So if you wanted a drinking water system that was reliable, you needed to go to someplace where the water was very, very clean. And finally, the height of the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir permitted the development of hydroelectric power, which subsidized the cost of construction. So there's some additional factors. And additionally, it was, was able to allow the system to be a gravity-fed system, so they didn't require any extra power to get the water to San Francisco. Great. So how did, Michael, how did San Francisco actually convince the federal government to go along with this plan? It took several tries to uh, have the federal government go along with this plan. Uh, there was a report that was done by John Freeman, an engineer in 1912, which uh, looked at alternative water supplies for San Francisco. And actually, it was an interesting report because some of those other alternative water supplies were being viewed by other cities in the Bay Area to bring down to uh, their cities to expand those. And so the city was able to secure the what we call the right-of-ways, the ability to place facilities in a national park and a national forest through a federal act. And only through that federal act were we able to build the system that we have today and deliver water 160 miles away by gravity to San Francisco. And we, we didn't really talk about the earthquake. Did the earthquake, was that a factor in all of this? It was a it was a huge factor the 1906 fire and earthquake because uh, you know the earthquake caused quite a bit of damage but it was the fire that really was the destruction of San Francisco and the fire uh, the firefighting capability of the water system at that time was not very sufficient and so that was one of the reasons that they used to campaign to get a municipal water supply to San Francisco because at that point in time all the water supplies in San Francisco were controlled by a private company called the Spring Valley Water Company and they had a monopoly on the water supplies coming into San Francisco. And as such, they could charge what they want. And they were not very reliable. And their system basically would run out of water at certain points in time. But the fire was really the destructive and became sort of the political cry for municipal supply for San Francisco. I, I think it's also, we tend to think of water supplies as being really important for drinking water or for irrigation or for industrial purposes. Fire protection was one of the major drivers of developing piped water systems all over the country. If you were in a city that didn't have adequate uh, fire service and fire hydrants and water pressure for that, there were the fire insurance companies charged so much money that that created a lot of political pressure in favor of big public systems. So there's some people who, are, who argue that it's not about water supply for people at all. It's all about keeping those fire insurance prices low. So, so it, w this didn't just happen through a political act. It was extremely controversial at the time. There was an environmental outcry, uh, and it was very controversial. It's, describe what the controversy was. So the, the controversy is complicated and multifaceted. And so you the one of the things that drove the the desire for the the uh, Hetch Hetchy system was, as Michael has said, the desire to to come up with an alternative to the private water system. That's one piece of it. 
There is also at this time a growing idea that water, that all natural resources should be used in the most efficient way possible, meaning use them fully, use them completely, use the, the water, if you're talking about water, in the place and for the way that it makes the most sense and will do the most good. That's the conservation movement. There's a growing movement that is trying to expand the powers of government to solve public problems. And those folks all kind of lined up on the side of eliminating the political monopoly and through eliminating or eliminating the water monopoly and through eliminating the monopoly, eliminate one source of political corruption. On the other side, there is there are a lot of people who believe that the wilderness is the thing that will define the American character. There are a growing number of people who are worried about the unsavory influence of cities on people's kind of culturally and behaviorally, and the, the way in which the natural world will help combat that, and the wilderness will help combat that. And so you have those folks aligning with this monopolistic private water company to, to combat the system. And that was, um, in the face, the, the person that personified that was John Muir. Was John Muir and the right. Sierra Club. But there, are, and, but there are many other people right. and many other characters. All right. Michael, do you have anything to add to that? No, I, I think Sarah's correctly framed it. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, the birth of the conservation movement really kind of, there, there was some movement going on, but I think really the Hetch Hetchy project really kind of solidified that, at least here in the Bay Area and across the country. Mm-hmm. All right. So this was an amazing engineering feat for its time. A fellow named Michael O'Shaughnessy was when the city finally got the passage of the Raker Act. Uh, Sonny Jim Roth brought in Michael O'Shaughnessy to design this system. What what did it take to to put in the Hetch Hetchy system? It took a tremendous amount of work. I mean, Michael O'Shaughnessy was a brilliant engineer who saw the height differential between Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and the city of San Francisco and used that height differential, about 4,000 feet, to bring water down to the city and to build a hydroelectric system that powers all the municipal functions here in San Francisco. It was a tremendous undertaking. There were there were uh, public workers. There were private workers. Uh you could never rebuild the system the way they did back in that mm-hmm. day. They literally lived in shacks along sides of hills. And uh, the methods that they used, blasting and things of that nature, it took them a long period of time. They had to build a railroad. They had to build towns. They had to get materials to the site. They had to build their you know, concrete plants on site. All of that was just a tremendous undertaking that you just don't see today. Well, and I mean, having gone up there quite a bit to film the documentary, just getting up to Hetch Hetchy today is quite a journey. It's a three and a half, four hour drive. Back in, back then, it took literally a couple of weeks to get up there from San Francisco, didn't it? Not to mention getting all the materials up there, like you said. How did they power actually running all that equipment up there? Well, a lot of it was run it was electrical, and so the first thing that they actually built was uh, a, a powerhouse at what we call early intake, and this was um, uh, Lake Eleanor, and the water from Lake Eleanor, it's a small lake. It's actually in Yosemite National Park. It's only about 26,000 acre feet compared to Hetch Hetchy's 360,000 acre feet. But the, the power from that uh, generation plant basically powered all the, the equipment that they had up there, uh, all the electric equipment, and it allowed them to electrify the work site so they could work 24 hours a day. Right. And there was a, what was the town, little town up there that kind of everybody, all the guys went to on the weekends that uh, <laughs> to kind of burn off steam? Yeah, it's still there. It's a little town called Groveland. If you've ever gone to Yosemite National Park on Highway 120, it's still there. And, and some of the old hotels that are still there. And as Jim said, they would go and burn off steam. And you can interpret that any way you want. <laughs> right. So it, at that time, Michael O'Shaughnessy sort of represented this, this kind of this, that engineers had the solution to all these problems. Uh, I don't know that we think quite that same way about these big projects anymore today. Could we build a Hetch Hetchy system today, do you think? It's a loaded question, but I'm glad to answer. <laughs> uh, given all the statutory requirements we have today that, and all the protections we have in place, I sort of doubt that we could do a live stream dam the size of Hetch Hetchy today in a national park. Right. And Sarah, what do you think are the, some of the conditions that would prevent that from happening? Well, first I, wanna th- I want to... Um, take a different perspective on those regulations and restrictions. We can, there, there is a way in which 
a lot of in in our contemporary politics, a lot of people just say, "Oh, the regulations are making this impossible. The regulations are making this impossible." We pass those regulations for reasons, and one of the way to to look at them is a barrier to big ambitious projects, and another way to look at them is they create an arena in which different people and different interests can actually bring voice to their priorities. And so, yeah, I agree. Building something on the scale of Hetch Hetchy would be very difficult because, not because of the regulations, but because there are more voices that are at that table who have greater legitimacy in expressing their interests. Right. And so I think that's, that is a big part of the, of the barrier. Um, and I think that that's part of the challenge that faces us going forward to get out of our uh, arena here and go away from your question a little bit is what are we going to do if we need more infrastructure, given those, given that we've got more people at the table, given that there's much less confidence and people are much less willing to just say, oh, the engineer said we should build it here this way. Let's go. Which is sort of the way it was. Back Which is then. very much yes. the way right. it was. Right. You hired an engineer. The engineer said this is the solution. You signed the legislation and went forward. So I want to bring Radhika into the conversation since she's been so quiet up to this point. So Very unlike me. Very unlike you, yes. So we've built this brand new water system. What impact did it have on the Bay Area in terms of the industry and the population? Well, I, I don't think we would have the Bay Area as we know it if Hetch Hetchy hadn't been built. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, water is so essential to everything that we experience in our lives. So just at a, at a personal level, right, if I think about my morning and having a steaming cup of coffee and taking a hot shower, getting the kids lunch packed, none of that would be possible without the reliable clean water supply that Hetch Hetchy provides. And if you think about, uh, you know, here in the Bay Area, all of this advanced manufacturing and the goods and the services all of that uh, relies on on a water. Supply. Silicon Valley is here because of that water, right? Si- Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, you know what we know is that one fifth of the economy in this country is fueled by water, whether it's agriculture, ex- advanced manufacturing to create these iPhones, all of these things. Um, and you know, actually, the U.S. Water Alliance we did a, a a national study that looked at what's the economic impact both of the water sector to the, from an economic benefit perspective. And we know that um, we generate 1.3 million jobs annually through water infrastructure investment. But what we also looked at is what happens if we have a disruption in water service. And uh, what the national number is, is that we would lose $40 billion a day in GDP um, if we have a disruption in these, these very reliable water systems. And I guess one point we didn't we didn't really make earlier, but the water that comes from Hetch Hetchy doesn't just bring water to San Francisco; it brings water to pretty much 2.7 million people, which is actually twice the number of people it brings. Michael, yeah, no, it's it's true. It's um, you know we serve all of San Mateo County, about 99 percent of San Mateo County, northern Santa Clara County, and southern Alameda County. And the fact that Silicon Valley is where it is is because the Hetch Hetchy water is so pure that that allowed them to develop the chips. And manufacture them there. Now they're all over the world with the technology to make chips, but that's where it all started. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the water that comes from the system either, which I think Sarah alluded to earlier. It's a, there's an entire hydroelectric power system as well, correct? That, that's correct. I mean, we do have hydroelectric power. Um, it's a, um, a renewable power. It's a green power. Uh, and it's part of our system. And uh, we operate the system in a water-first manner because uh, energy is a secondary product at this point in time. But it is a benefit for people in San Francisco and also some of the Sierra communities that we actually serve power to as well. And so uh, how does the story of Hetch Hetchy fit into the broader story of water in California? We've been kind of lucky, haven't we? We've had this dedicated system. And how, does that, how do we fit into the bigger matrix of the, what we, I guess what we'd call the water wars here in California? Great question, uh, <laughs> since I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, so Hetch Hetchy has been sort of behind the scenes, not really part of the water allocation uh, in California uh, that we've been going through for decades now. Uh, there was a recent change in the regulations at the State Water Resources Control Board, which actually tapped us basically to be looking at uh, flows in the Tuolumne River. 
Those flows in the Tuolumne River are controlled by the Modesto and Turlock Irrigation Districts, which are downstream from us, and we are upstream from, from them. But we have this relationship through the Raker Act that we have to honor, and part of what we're working on now is like how much water needs to be in the streams for environmental benefit, how much water can be diverted in a, in a sustainable way. And uh, for the first time, San Francisco is, is intimately involved in those discussions where we never have been before. Let me also offer a national perspective on the Hetch Hetchy system. Um, you know, at, I really believe that we need a fundamental um, paradigm shift in how we view, value, and manage water in this country. Um, we, you know, the, the way our water policy system grew up, right, it, it's all about stovepipes and silos. We have over 20 federal agencies that have some authority over water in this country. Um, we have 55,000 drinking water utilities, 18,000 wastewater utilities that are dotting the American landscape. Some of these are serving 50 people, 500 people, right? And so what we're seeing all around the country is how do we actually consolidate these services so that we can really deliver on safe water at a time when we have emerging contaminants and lots and lots of concerns. And so I think that um, we are really blessed here in the Bay Area to have a Hetch Hetchy system because when you have something of that scale where you can ha you have economies of scale, you have the ability to spread the cost of infrastructure investment over 2.7 million people, you have the um, ability to innovate in ways that, um, that these smaller systems can't. And so I think the Hetch Hetchy system is really one of the competitive advantages that this region has, and it's one that we need to really continue investing in. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Our program tonight is Water from the Wilderness, San Francisco's water supply post-1906 and in the era of climate change. With Jim Yeager, Senior Producer, Jim Yeager Media, Water from the Wilderness, Michael Carlin, Deputy Chen General Manager and Chief Operating Officer, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, Sarah Elkin, Professor, Environment and Urban History, San Diego State University, and Radhika Fox, Chief Executive Officer, U.S. Water Alliance. And I'll be coming around if, in just a few minutes to pick up question cards. So will you fill out your question cards and give them to me? And we will have question cards and answers later on in the program. And now back to you, Jim. Thank you, Anne. Well, as we just learned in this first half of the discussion, it's a, it's a fascinating history that we go into great detail in Water from the Wilderness. But we're going to pivot now to a discussion about the future that San Francisco, as well as cities around the country, are facing in light of climate change. Once again, here's a short clip from the documentary to help launch the second half of our discussion. San Francisco, like other cities, are trying to think about um, how to deal with uh, problems like climate change and sea level rise and tidal surges. And that's going to be a really big problem because the existing infrastructure that feeds San Francisco in the Bay Area was designed for a climate that no longer exists. The pristine and bountiful snowpack in the Sierras that captured Phelan's imagination during the early 20th century and made it an ideal source of fresh water for the semi-arid city is proving far from permanent. We rely on snowpack, and we're concerned that we may not get as much snow. And if we do get snow, that the rise in temperature, that it'll melt faster because our snowpack is a form of storage. And so we just don't have enough storage. One of the things that we feel is pretty likely to happen is less snow and more precipitation as rain. That might mean we need to have some additional storage someplace to really make the system work well. Our water future is very, very uncertain. Water experts agree we're going to see violent swings in our weather so that we're going to have more droughts and then we're going to have more extremely wet winters. So, Michael, what we just heard Harlan, one of the things that Harlan Kelly said, who is the general manager of the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, is one of the problems we're going to have is snowpack, melting snowpack, and a lack of storage and with these swings in climate. So what are some of the things that we could do to address that? 
Well, there's several things that we can do to address that. One um, that comes to mind is that um, as we have less snow and, and more rain, uh, we're going to have to be able to be a little bit more nimble in how we operate the system. Um, as such, you know, we would look to um, the different kinds of storage than just surface storage reservoirs. We're looking at groundwater storage. We're looking at recharge of groundwater basins in the Central Valley, partnering, collaborating with others who are facing the same problems. We're looking at ways to uh, recycle more water, we, you know, uh, use it the, the right water for the right purpose. And even here in San Francisco, what we're doing now is uh, looking at um, a lot of these large office buildings downtown. We're looking at putting in these small package plants so that they're using water more efficiently, more effectively as we kind of go forward. So, yes, we're going to see a change in the Sierras. We already are seeing that, and we're, we're running a whole risk analysis on that. It's a big study we've been doing uh, for an, a year now. But it's, it's going to be different things than normal. There is so- no normal. No, there is no longer a normal. That's right. Radhika, from your perspective, what are some of the bigger challenges? Three things, really. Um, I think one, as a nation, we don't really value water and the water infrastructure that um, makes it so that for most of us here in this country, we can turn on the tap and clean water comes out. We can flush our toilet and we don't have to think about what happens when we do that, right? And so... Because we don't value that water, and, and the challenge, right, is these systems are invisible. So they're out of sight. They're out of mind. People see the pothole in their street. They don't see that rusty pipe beneath their feet. So we have underinvested for a really long time. You know, Jim, one thing that um, really surprises people is here we are, San Francisco, world-class city, right? Some of the pipes that are beneath us are uh, red brick pipes from the gold rush era. That is literally what has been. Yeah, we were crawling around in them during the filming, yes. (laughs) So that lack of investment has led to aging infrastructure. And then now we have this climate challenge, right, where um, we are seeing extreme weather events of unprecedented uh, proportions. The United uh, Climate Change Panel basically said that in the next 12 to 20 years, we will see catastrophic impacts of climate change. Uh, I know for me, I have children that are 7 and 10 years old, so that is very much in my lifetime. So how are we going to respond to this climate challenge? And then I think third, um, we know that water stress is experienced um, much more painfully for lower income people and communities of color. And so if we make investments in our water infrastructure, if we become climate resilient, but we are not taking care of those communities who are being left behind, um, we will continue to be a divided nation. And so we have to focus on investing in water. We have to do it with an eye towards climate resilience. And we have to make sure that everyone is benefiting from those uh, investments that we make. Sarah, do you have anything to add? I think the biggest, uh, in addition to the things that you have said, another major threat is that we have, uh, we are in an era of small government. And these are big problems, and they are big problems that cost more than they're ever going to generate in revenue, in direct revenue. And without government solutions, and it's not that government has to own every water system. San Jose is still operating on a private water company. It works very, very well, but it's well regulated. And if you don't believe in regulations and you don't believe in taxes and you don't believe in public infrastructure run by the people, run for the people by a nonprofit entity, you're not going to have an equitable system. And when those systems are too fragmented, you end up and, – and you weaken government regulatory structures so much, you end up with Flint. Right. And Sarah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it is true that we are at an all-time low in this country as far as trust in government in yeah. general. And then in the water sector, right, we have what is the Flint effect. I mean – Gross mismanagement of the water system in Flint, horrible tragedy that has really um, impacted a whole generation of children and families, right? But what we see now, right, is that the Flint effect where other communities that have very safe drinking water are are afraid of their systems. They don't trust their public water systems. And so I was just reading a statistic about how lower income people and communities of color are drinking bottled water at unprecedented rates. And that to me is such an equity issue, both because we know that there's health issues around the plastics and things like that and bottled water. And also these are some of the communities that can least afford that. Mm -hmm. And so this 
fundamental breach of public trust in government and how we solve that is, is going to be essential to solving uh, the water challenge. And that's not happening just in places as far away as Flint. It's happening right here in California in Tulare. So we're, they're having to truck water in because their water infrastructure doesn't isn't supporting their population. There's, but there's a second. There's a another problem in the Central Valley, which is over um, overuse of the groundwater by irrigation districts and water storage districts, where they're drawing down the water table below the municipal wells with no. Uh, and, and as far as I know, very little regard for what the impact are, impacts are on those, right. on those uh, urban, those municipalities that, that need the water, too. So we spent a bit of time in the documentary talking about some of the alternatives, things like desalination and recycled water. Michael, what are some of the more promising new technologies out there that we should be looking at? Well, one of the things that's happening is that... Um, Technology is kind of uh, catching up to the water industry. Um, we tended to build large centralized systems, large centralized plants, heavy on infrastructure, heavy on investment, uh, taking everything from, you know, bringing water down to, uh, from the Sierras to here to taking it into a wastewater plant to putting it out back into the bay, throwing it away. No value yet to it. Technology has caught up with us that basically we can do these smaller plants you need smaller wastewater plants inside, you know, buildings and such, that that's going to be sort of the future as we look at new development, not just in San Francisco, but everywhere in California. It's, it's, it's a wave that's coming. The, the second thing that uh, is really important is there is a Groundwater Management Act in place in California now where people, as Sarah pointed out, rightly so, have overdrawn uh, the aquifers. Now we'll have to manage them in a sustainable way. So now they're looking to others to help pay for that because those communities can't afford to do all of it. So here's, again, where we can do a partnership, we can work with those communities, and we can put technology in place on those wells to treat the water, to remove the contaminants that basically are not good for the people in those communities. So all of those in place with, and this is the other thing that we're kind of looking at, is with the ability, this is where big government, small government, with the ability to borrow money at a very low interest rate, for these essential services and having the government, in this case the federal government, guaranteeing loans allows us to go to the financial markets to do all of this. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So what I'm hearing is there is no single silver bullet that's going to save us. No. (laughs) All right. So what kind of dialogues need to be taking place right now to... Well, you know, I'm I'm here from San Francisco, and I spend a lot of my time in the Central Valley of California, because I think that's where the future is. Um, the irrigation districts actually under the water rights system have the lion's share of water in the state of California. So we need to figure out a way to work with them in a cooperative, uh, collegial way um, to work towards how do we help them be more efficient? How do we look at their groundwater basins and, and get them back up so they become storage reservoirs for the future during droughts? And how do we help them finance those those things um, so that we can basically see the benefits from it if we're paying them? And also, I, 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 the small communities in the Central Valley are re- really underrepresented in the water world. And they are the ones that are hurting the most as far as getting access to clean drinking water. In, in the state of California, it's a shame that we have communities like that. So... Bringing it back a little bit to San Francisco, and uh, we here have gotten kind of spoiled and rather proprietary about our hetch, hetchy drinking water. Um, wow. It sounds to me like we can't necessarily continue to count on it as much as we have in terms of at least the quantity of it. So what are some of the ways that San Francisco is addressing uh, the future in that way? Well, there's a couple of things. One, uh, we're very efficient with our water use. 
and we continue to invest in water use efficiency, you know, both you know in residences and multifamily residences and in businesses. That'll continue to go on. So here in San Francisco, we use about 41 gallons per person per day. The state average is around 82, 85. Wow, really? That much less? Yeah. yeah. So the second thing is we're about to bring recycled water online uh, on the west side of San Francisco. So you think about it, Golden Gate Park is one of our biggest water users in San Francisco for outside irrigation. I don't know if anybody else has a yard that they actually irrigate, but uh, you know we're going to bring recycled water to, to Golden Gate Park in the west side of San Francisco, which will save a lot of water. We're looking at uh, sustainable groundwater usage on the west side of San Francisco. There's a huge groundwater basin that goes from uh, Golden Gate Park all the way down to the airport with three other cities. So we're working on what we call a project where we give them more surface water when we have excess surface water, and then they basically stop taking groundwater, and then we take that groundwater out in a drought. We're looking at desalination, but that's a that's a tricky issue because you know where you located, where you you know, it has its environmental risk. You know there are things that are associated with that, but I I think you know we're not relying on any one thing, and that's the important thing. We're looking at everything, every possibility. If you kind of look at it, we're looking at every rock for a drop of water. Um, and we kind of talked about a little bit in the film. How about recycled sewer water? I know San Jose is sort of playing around with that. So. Uh, what Jim is talking about is is there's going to come a time when there's not going to be enough water uh, in certain year types that our, our wastewater, we're going to have to um, recycle it for direct potable reuse, meaning that basically it will become drinking water. Now, if you lived in New Orleans, you basically would be drinking a lot of wastewater coming down <laughs> that river. I was I was going to say that. If you, <laughs> if you draw your water from the bottom of the river rather than the top, you're drinking recycled water. So, <laughs> well, And some people are making beer with it. So, I mean, there's that. Right. So there's there, that. There, right. there Fermented, was, yes. There exactly. was a proposal to do a water recycling pilot program in San Diego that got defeated because it was labeled toilet to tap. Right. And... <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. I actually think it's a great label because it's honest about what you're doing. I have the coffee cup. <laughs> it, it, it's Water recycling, I think, is an extremely important option because it is a way to increase the local sources of supply without eroding the environmental protections that we've put into place. If, if, if we try to build our way out of the, the future water struggles by, dam- by building more dams, by damming things, by building bigger dams and making them taller, we erode what little ecological protection we've got for rivers. And so that's, that's not a great solution, but recycling the water that's already in the cities is a lot better. And it's well, more- and I think it's also important for all of us to remember that all water is recycled water. The water that our children drink, that we drink, is what the dinosaurs drink. It's all recycled water. There is no new water to be had. And so how we steward it um, matters. Michael, did you have something to add? No, I'll pass. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so all these things that we're talking about require infrastructure and money. as we sort of the theme that we keep coming back to is there the political climate or the political will to do these things and how do we do them? We have to raise taxes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. And we have to invest in the public in, in the things that benefit the public. And the, the Hetch Hetchy system was built at a time when people were just, beginning to flex, well, not beginning, but in the middle of a growth and flexing the muscles of of government responsibility for this sort of thing. And that's what it's going to take. Well, and I also think that we're in this just very funny, funny place right now uh, in this nation because um, we uh, there's something called the Value of Water campaign that we work with. And uh, next week, we're actually releasing a national poll that we do every year to say, what are the public's attitude about uh, water? What do they care about? And what we will release next week is that four out of five people are willing to pay more to invest in their water system, whether they're Democratic, whether they're Republican, whether they're black, whether they're white, whether they're a man or a woman. So 
actually the public is there. The public understands that these investments need to be made. I think that there's a huge political hurdle um, and dysfunction, frankly, that we need to overcome. And what I would just offer is that, you know, this is a nation that has done great things when we set our minds to it. You're an environmental historian, um, Sarah. You know, 50 years ago, the Cuyahoga River was on fire because there was so much pollution. It hadn't burned once. It burned 13 times because of that pollution. And what we said as a nation is that our water matters. And so we created the EPA. We created the Clean Water Act. We created the Hetch Hetchy system. So, um, well, the Hetch Hetchy system was already there. But you get my drift that (laughs) if we focus uh, from a federal, state, local partnership, we can solve this. It's a matter of political will. And I guess that gets me to the next question, which is... um what are the partnerships and things that need to take place to make these kinds of things happen? Is it more than just government? How do we create an environment that is more trusting of these kinds of programs? So um, one of the things that we do is we have to go out and raise rates. And when we go out to raise rates, it's not like we don't uh, just put it out there and say we're going to raise the rates. We hold community meetings. We, we, we educate people about the system that uh, we're actually raising the rates on. We show them the value that they get, whether it's a reliable supply, whether it's you know, a drought protection. And it takes a lot of time. So we, we do like 55, 60 community meetings when we're raising rates in San Francisco. And everybody ha- comes. You know, we, we listen to them. We understand what their, their concerns are. There's the affordability issue. You know, you're raising our rates, you know, gee whiz, and they're raising the rates for public transportation. How do we balance that out? And it's a cost of living issue. You'd be amazed that, you know, uh, the things that we kind of hear from people, but I think one of the things that resonates with me the most is if you look at a city like San Francisco, you think it's a very rich city and we can just raise rates across the board. There are communities, there are people there in San Francisco that are barely hanging on. They're living below the poverty line. And we have to take that into consideration. So, Documentarians, for example. <laughs> Jim, I'm trying to take care of you. Uh, but but it, I, it's true, and we need to, to have that in our consciousness. And I think we need to have a partnership, not just with the communities, but then we have to have a partnership with the state government. We have to have a partnership with the federal government. And they have to understand there are partners, and that's a hard thing to get across to some of them. Well, as Sarah said, we need to raise taxes, but who are we raising taxes on? I guess that's a really big question when you see, especially here in the Bay Area, the minting of millionaires on a monthly basis. How, how, do, how do we make that equity possible and keep some of the other communities intact? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question and one that we're trying to tackle now on the affordability issue because there are these hidden communities within our service area that basically can't really afford the basic necessities such as water. Right. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Now it's time for our audience questions, and we have some wonderful questions. And, Jim, I'll give them to you. Um, It's amazing, uh, the questions that we have, and thank you for all of those who did your question card. And, oh, we have one more. Uh, we may not get through all of them, but because we had quite a few, but we will certainly have them for you if you'd like to look at them. Jim? Right. So the first question is, uh, besides calls for deregulation and privatization, what are any political red flags I should be watching for as a voter who cares about water security? Well, it's that's a good that's a great question because I think um, the Flint example is a great one where there's a breakdown sort of like in the approach to meeting the regulations, and I think the regulations aren't going to go away. In fact, they're going to probably get stricter over time. Um, I also think that um, you know we still need to build up trust with the public, and that's that's something that we have to kind of work on going forward. Uh. The next question is, is the entire Hetch Hetchy system gravity-driven all the way to San Francisco? Yes. It's all the way to Sunset Reservoir on the west side of San Francisco. Uh, it's That's the gravity terminal terminus for the system. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have pumps on the system and move water around. And in fact, in San Francisco, for the hills, we have to pump water up to tanks that basically then feed the residences by gravity. So this gets back to one of the things we were talking about, another question from the same person. What percentage of the state's water is consumed by Central Valley Farms versus industry versus residential? It's, um, I think it's now about 80%, and, and, uh, which sounds like a lot until you think about what you have to put on a plant to water it to grow. So agriculture just uses a lot of water because plants need a lot of water. Um, and the the thing that I think that's very interesting is that when we think when when California cities think about what are we going to do when we need more water, there are these big, massive irrigation systems in the Central Valley that we can make arrangements with, such as you were describing, Michael. But think about the cities that are facing the same situations on the east in the eastern half of the U.S. where they have no irrigation systems to tap. So there were several questions in here kind of all along the same lines, and I'll just pick one of them. It's, is, uh, could San Francisco and the Bay Area still thrive if the water and power from the dam itself were removed in favor of restoration? And I, I, you, you each probably have a different perspective on that. So It's a great question. Uh, there would have to be an alternative source of water that was sufficient enough to um, sustain the population we have now, and we are growing, and that's the reality. And uh, where would that water come from? As Radhika said, the the water on the planet is the same water that's been here for you know uh, since the dawn of time. So, what would that other source of water be? I mean, either then we're going to the ocean and building a huge desalinization plant, the energy cost, the brine that's the discharge water, uh, discard water, or or what other reliable supply can we actually you know turn to? Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're trying to diversify our water supply so, uh, as we speak, because we know that the, the value of the Hetch Hetchy system as a water supply will diminish over time. I, I'm a pragmatist. So if it was, you know, if we were to go back in time, I might have been marching with John Muir. Who knows, right? But the system is here. It served the region well there would be huge climate impacts to dismantle a dam and find an alternative source. So I think take a lesson from history, cherish and steward the resource. It, it took much sacrifice to create it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of along the lines of what Sarah brought up earlier. So speak to the potential for large scale stormwater capture and reuse rather than um, uh, outfall. Uh, big projects like the LA River project can they really are they really potentially feasible you you have to deal with you'd have to build an infrastructure system to capture and hold that that rainwater what LA has that San Francisco doesn't have is it's got a series of mountains and a bunch of alluvial fans which so they have a built-in groundwater capture and they built their flood control systems in the 30s specifically to capture that ground that stormwater and um, and have it percolate down into the groundwater we don't and San Francisco where would you I mean I think it's a great idea but where would you put it and I think that decentralized systems might be a uh, a place where that could happen, where you could capture the stormwater from a building and use the water right there. And we do have an ordinance uh, in San Francisco uh, for commercial uh, industrial applications where they have to capture 20, 25% of the stormwater on site and reuse it on site. So in our office building here in San Francisco, we have a cistern outside of the building where we capture stormwater, store it, and then we use it for irrigation and toilet flushing purposes. So the next question is, after a century of groundwater mining and aquifer collapse, is groundwater storage a viable option? Bring back Lake Tulare, question mark. Can evaporation prevention of reservoirs be implemented to limit water loss at surface storage facilities? That's an interesting, somebody else brought that up when we were actually interviewing people for the documentary. I'd never really heard of that before, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, so the groundwater basins are are essentially uh, you think about them they as, as they are depleted they're also a great place to store water and you can actively through you know infrastructure and technology push water into an aquifer and and buoy it up over time so that the the groundwater level rises. Um, the second part of the question about you know, trying to prevent evaporation on surface reservoirs 
there's lots of people, I think Los Angeles Department of Water and Power looked at uh, little plastic balls on a reservoir and seen if they could actually uh, reduce the amount of evaporation you have. So it's also dependent on like what's the outside temperature, where's the reservoir located, how do you operate the reservoir. But people are looking at that uh, more as we kind of go forward because it's evaporation loss and seepage is, is, is a huge factor in, in a big water system. I, um, one of the things that I, has always struck me about Hetch Hetchy is it's so high up and it's so narrow, a canyon, that the evaporation there has got to be much less than it, at the, in, in other reservoirs, like the reservoirs serving the East Bay, which are low and shallow and broad, where there's got to be much more evaporation. So that's another reason why Hetch Hetchy made sense as a place to build in the first place. So this is an interesting, this is a little interesting sidelight, and it's something that we talked a little bit about in the discussions about the documentary, which was the, please discuss what you know about the, the San Francisco high pressure system in San Francisco. Do you suspect this system growing? Do you see the system growing in the Bay Area? So this is, um, we have a two water systems in San Francisco. We have what we call the low pressure system, which serves uh, all the buildings and residences in San Francisco. And then we have a firefighting system, which is an auxiliary water supply system, which is a high pressure system. And the high pressure system is mainly located in downtown. It extends a little bit over to the west side of San Francisco towards 19th Avenue, it spreads a little bit towards the southeast section. And we're in the midst right now of actually expanding that system and expanding the firefighting capability uh, in the future. So that system is right now, um, in effect, you know, our sort of like line of defense in a major fire in the future. And it has served us very well. One of the things Sarah touched upon earlier was about firefighting. If this was an only a water system serving residences, the pipes would be very small. Our pipes are very big because of firefighting capability. And that was all because of 1906. And that's all because of back to the beginning. Yes. Yeah. All right. So discuss, this may be an interesting question for Radica, actually. Discuss water rates and how to incent consumers and water providers to invest in water conservation and infrastructure resiliency. Well, I think actually San Francisco is pretty good at their rate structure that encourages conservation. Um, they, you know, they have a certain set amount that, you get at a certain rate and then as your usage goes up and that's I think that sort of notion of inclining rates is something that communities around the country are increasingly using. Um, there are also communities um, that are doing things like providing rebates for if you uh, put in place uh, more efficient fixtures, um, toilets, that sort of thing. So um, I think there's a lot we can do um, around uh, supporting conservation, which is also, right, if we reduce the consumption, that's a great way to get at affordability as well. Well, and one of the things that we really focused, the reason for doing the documentary in the first place was just bringing all of this dialogue level up to the point of actually where people pay attention to this sort of thing. And it's not just when we're in a drought or we're in a time of crisis, but we have an understanding of the infrastructure, how it works and what, how it impacts our daily lives. Uh, something that Radhika, you had said something, you and I you talked earlier about the value, the value, something about arts and culture and kind of dealing with uh, the, the the value of a documentary like Water from Wilderness, people don't always want to hear a wonky policy discussion of water. How do arts and culture impact the discussion of infrastructure? Yeah, I, I was saying, I, I was really just applauding you, Jim, for taking your skills and telling the story of Hetch Hetchy because uh, as we've talked about this evening, I mean, water is really, really complicated, right? Um, and one of the things we've been really uh, working on is uh, partnerships with artists and cultural practitioners, uh, because we think it's really important for folks to both reconnect to the the cultural significance of, of the of water and 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 connect back to that source. Um, but also, I mean, we are talking about really complicated um, things when we talk about climate change and water, right? So when you say to a person, sea levels are going to rise six and a half feet by twenty twenty, I mean, what does that even mean, right? 
So one of the things we've been doing is working with an artist. Her name is Eve Mosier, and um, she has a project called High Waterline. And so what she did is she walked 70 miles of the New York uh, shoreline, uh, marking with the blue chalk where the sea levels were um, estimated to rise to. And in doing that, she had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with residents about, you know, is that the library that your kids go to or is that the grocery store that you shop at? Those are going to be underwater uh, as sea level continues to rise. And what's incredible about Eve's work, and she's now doing it in cities all around the country, is um, she did that in New York before um, the Hurricane Sandy happened or Superstorm Sandy. And so... Literally, the places where she walked are now underwater and gone. So, so we need partnerships with folks like you, Jim, um, and and your fellow artists all are, uh, all around um, to help make these invisible systems more visible and really help people understand uh, what's at stake in a much more human way. I think we have one last question here. Um, uh, the question was, how long did it take to build Hetch Hetchy? Well, that's a great question. Actually, took quite a long time, didn't it, Michael? Quite a long time. So <laughs> it started, like I said, the passage of the Rake Rock in 1913, then finished uh, Eleanor Dam in 1918, uh, and water was not delivered to San Francisco until 1934. Right. Yes, that's when, the, that's when it came down to the Polgus Water Temple down there at Crystal Springs, and uh, there was a great celebration when it finally arrived in San Francisco. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club. Uh, actually, we have the last question that was next to last, but I have one more question. Okay, okay. Uh, It's about water and plastics and the accumulation of plastics everywhere. So Michael? It- <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So the question is, what do we do about it? Water and plastics and the accumulation of plastics everywhere. How does so that I guess that's uh, we all have to stop drinking out of our plastic water bottles for one thing, right? I, I would say to get a re- reusable water bottle, start right. using that. Uh, you'll also see that <clears throat> plastics are going to become a problem for us because the market for plastic was China. And they're not taking plastics as much from us anymore. So you're going to see, you know, the cost to have that individual little water bottle kind of go up. And you should know that uh, those plastics do leach certain things into the water. They're not entirely safe. It's, a, it's an industry that uh, I would say is under-regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so get a reusable bottle. If you come by and see me sometime, I'll give you one. Yes. <laughs> can, can I just add that? The water that is in those water bottles, it's tap water from somebody else's tap. So fill it up yourself. (laughs) Exactly. I think one of the uh, issues I think the uh, person was trying to say is what about the teeny tiny plastics that we have in the ocean? Uh, That's a whole different discussion that we could have. (laughs) I think we're all aware of that at some point. Um, Michael? Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, the microplastics are, are a problem, uh, and they are getting into our environments, and it's showing up at basically our disposable society of using plastics for about everything, for you know, wrapping goods, and being thinking that you're disposing of them is, is coming back to haunt us. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. You're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. And we have uh, a wonderful panel tonight. Our program tonight is Water from the Wilderness, San Francisco's Water Supply, post-1906 and in the Era of Climate Change, with Jim Yeager, Senior Producer, Jim Yeager Media, Water from the Wilderness. And Jim has been our moderator tonight, so let's give Jim a big hand. And Michael Carlin, Deputy General Manager and Chief Operating Officer, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. I I get my bill from SFPUC, and actually I read it, and I'm very impressed by what SFPUC has done. So let's give Michael a great big hand. And Sarah Elkin, Professor, Environment and Urban History, San Diego State University, 
And for Sarah, I've always admired those who are doing work for the environment and reaching out to both our graduate students and our undergraduate students to really get the message out and educate students. So Sarah, thank you for all your work and a good, 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 good applause for her. Radhika, thank you for your Fox, Chief Executive Officer, U.S. Water Alliance. Thank you very much for everything you've talked with us today and all your insights and your help for us to understand what's going on. So a big, big one more big clap. Applause. Our thanks and applause to you, our wonderful audience. You have been terrific, and I really thank you for coming, and I thank you for being here, and your questions were really quite amazing. So let's give ourselves applause. <laughs> and finally, our audiences, as you know, are on the radio, internet, podcasts, and we want to thank those who are listening to us uh, for joining us and being here for the things that we discussed tonight. And you could hear us do that discussion on our uh, various, or various systems. And finally, please join us for our spring program. And I think the next program you will really like a lot, so I hope you will come. It's April 17th, 17th <laughs> the California Table celebrating sustainable food and wine. And there'll be wine tasting afterwards. So please join us. It will be a fun evening and we always have a really good panel and we always have really good wine. So <laughs> it's been a pleasure listening to our audience and to you and again, our panel. Thank you for joining us at the Commonwealth Club of California. This is Ann Clark, Chair of the Environment and Natural Resources Member-Led Forum. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned.